Well, I was supposed to talk about Barnabas this morning, and I'm going to get there eventually. You just got to trust me on that, okay? Uh, but I, I got distracted. Um, I got distracted by Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, where Paul writes what is, in my opinion, my humble opinion, one of the greatest calls to unity for any group at any time. It's powerful, it's inspiring, it's eloquent, it's doctrinally sound, it's just magnificent. I just want you to listen as I read it to you. This is Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. That is what I call a call to Christian unity. Don't waste your time looking. You're not going to find a better one. I think, if anything, if any exhortation, any speech, any words could move people to unity all on their own, I think those would be the ones that would do it. But of course, on their own, they don't. They didn't in the early church. They don't today. And it made me wonder, this is what distracted me, I started wondering this week, why is that? Why is it that if we all love the idea of unity, especially Christian unity, why is achieving it so hard? Listen, my guess is that most of us like the idea of Christian unity. Certainly, we like the idea of unity here within uh, First Free. And I imagine that most of us are naturally attracted uh, to the idea of people from every tongue and tribe and nation gathered together and serving worshiping under the common lordship of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you aren't, there might be something wrong with you. Uh, It's the great and grand vision of the New Testament. Uh, It is part of the majestic promise of the Abrahamic covenant. I think you could even argue it's right there uh, in the very beginning in Genesis, in the commission that God gives to Adam and Eve. Jesus prays for it. Paul pleads with his churches to strive for it. Unity in the body of Christ is a wonderful, beautiful, biblical idea. And yet, despite this near-unanimous agreement in theory, it's very hard to find unity in reality, both inside and outside the church. In fact, it's disunity that we can see, I think, everywhere we look. And so why is it that no matter how much we want it, It always seems to elude us. Well, fortunately for us, Paul was no ivory tower theorist. Uh, He was a pastor and an apostle, uh, and he had ample experience of real life in the real world. Uh, And so because of that, Ephesians doesn't end at chapter 4, verse 6. Paul doesn't just write amen and seal that letter and send it off. He keeps writing. He gets real, and he gets practical, Look with me at at verses 17 through 19. This is still Ephesians 4. After this great call to unity, Paul then drills down a little bit. And he says, So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding, and they are separated from the life of God 
because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So why is unity so elusive? Why we find unity difficult to live out, I think, and I think Paul says, because unity does not come naturally to fallen human beings. And the reason for that is obvious. It's sin. Sin fundamentally makes all of us selfish and self-centered. And I would guess that most of us already know that. Uh, Evidence certainly abounds. Uh, Corrupted by sin, what we do is we, each one of us, run after our own agendas and our own desires. And over time, as you do that more and more, you start to worry less and less about the people that you harm in the process. Listen again to how Paul describes life apart from God. He, He refers to this as the way the Gentiles live, but that's what he means. This is how people apart from God live. He says that apart from God, we are futile in our thinking. Verse 17, darkened in our understanding and ignorant and hard-hearted, verse 18, without any sensitivity and given over to sensuality, indulgence, and full of greed, verse 19. Let me just tell you, you can't forge unity out of those ingredients. doesn't matter how often or how hard you try. And that's why Paul insists, he insists that the church Stop living that way. But here's the issue, I think. Even though we've got that working against us, we still like the idea of unity. We're still attracted to it. We still want to belong. And so what do we do? We try harder. Uh, We try again. We try with different people in different contexts. Or worse, uh, we decide that that what we really need to do is we we need to sort ourselves out a little bit differently, right? If, if we could just get the problem people out and we could attract more of the right people, you know, the right people, people who uh, think like us, who are more like us, who act like us, and dare I say it, people who look like us and vote like us. And we think if we could just attract those people, well, then we'd have unity. But of course, Paul's not having any of that, and I'm not either. Over the long haul, I think we all know That doesn't work either, and for the same simple reason. And that is that apart from God, we are all of us, we are all of us, the problem people. C.S. Lewis, in his excellent little book, The Great Divorce, uh, is inspired by another story. He reimagines the relationship and the fundamental incompatibility of heaven and hell. Uh, In particular, I've always been struck by his depiction of hell, In his book, uh, he imagines hell not as a place of fire and brimstone, but simply as a place uh, where where human beings live in the gracious, compassionate presence of God is totally absent. Hell is just the place where human beings are given over totally and completely to their own desires and their own agendas. That's it. Lewis explores what happens when God does that, when he totally withdraws. And one of the things that has always struck me uh, is is a sort of geographic description. Lewis describes that over time what happens in hell is every person moves further and further away from every other person who's there. Because sin's been just allowed to run its full course. 
And it makes every person there completely and utterly self-absorbed to the point that any interaction with any other person is just an intolerable infringement. And so every time one of them encounters another, they respond by moving further away from everybody else. And the result is utter and complete alienation and isolation by choice. Now listen, Lewis makes it clear, this isn't meant to be a a theological treatise on hell. It's a work of imagination and speculation. But like so many of the things he wrote, I think he put his finger on a powerful truth. And that is that sin, the natural work of sin in our lives, is to drive us away from other people, to alienate us. Apart from God, Lewis says, there can never be lasting unity because apart from him, we will each go our own way. Now listen, I know that's depressing. When I took classes on preaching, they didn't advise opening your sermons this way. Uh, but I've done it because I think it's important. And here's why. As I've thought about this this week, I think that if we don't start by admitting that genuine unity is beyond human effort, beyond all human effort and eloquence, we are never going to get anywhere. All we're going to do is try over and over again to make the same recipe without the, all the vital ingredients. And it's just never going to work. The simple fact is, fallen people will always, in the long run, run after their own desires. And apart from God, that's everyone. And no amount of working, or shaming, or pleading, or persuading can change it. The only thing that can produce unity in the midst of that sinful reality, Paul says, is a work of God. That's it. Unity is only possible when we are first made new in Christ. Look at how Paul says it in the next four verses, chapter 4, verses 20 to 24. He says, that, however, the part we just read, that is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its sinful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Listen, I think this morning there are two obvious but critical truths about unity here. First, that our sinful nature leads all of us eventually to alienation. All of us. Lewis is right. You give any of us enough time apart from God and we will alienate ourselves from everyone else. It is the natural terminus of sin in the human life. And it's because of that that any effort at unity has to begin it has to begin with the work of God to transform us. That's why, I think, after that majestic call to unity in the opening of the chapter, uh, Paul eventually gets to this section where he drills down and he says, if you are to have any hope of unity, it has to begin, it has to start with God's work in you. It doesn't begin with your effort or your vision or your pastor's vision it certainly doesn't begin with you working on other people. It begins with God working on you. Unity is only possible because of what God does in us. 
That's why, in the beginning of the chapter, Paul calls it uh, the unity of the Spirit. It's a unity that is only made possible by the Spirit of God, by what God has done in us. It has to start there with a new self and a renewed mind. Uh, In my office here at church, uh, I have a laptop that I bring back and forth. Uh, But in my office, I've got a a big monitor and and a keyboard and a mouse. And when I get here in the morning, uh, I I have a dock that all those things are plugged into. I open up my laptop, I plug the dock in, and then all of a sudden, you know, magically, not magically, but, you know, to me it's magic, I can use the monitor and keyboard and mouse. And ever since I got that dock, that has all worked flawlessly until about a year ago. A year ago, I'm working on something, I get a little pop-up, you've probably seen it, it says, Windows needs to install critical updates. And boy, they love to make you feel nervous about that. Like, critical updates? Like, okay, I better do it. So I clicked on that, it installs the updates, and it says, you know, good job. Now we just need to, re- need to restart the computer so it can finish. So I restart the computer, and when it turns back on, the picture's not on my monitor anymore, it's on my laptop screen. Even though the dock is still plugged in, I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, I thought, well, maybe once I log in, it'll, you know, make the connection and everything will work. Uh, So I go to log in, keyboard doesn't work, mouse doesn't work. So now I'm kind of confused, but I log in on the laptop keyboard and it boots up and I think, okay, I wait a few seconds, nothing happens. Uh, And then I do what all of us do when that type of situation arises. I frowned at my computer to let it know I was displeased, right? And I I frowned at it, and I tapped some keys on my keyboard again, because maybe this time it would be different, nothing. Then to be extra sure, I tapped them harder. Still nothing happened. So then I escalated my intervention. I unplugged the dock, and I plugged it back in. Nothing happened. I unplugged everything, shut everything down, plugged it all back in, turned it back on, nothing. I repeated these various steps over and over for about the next half an hour, getting increasingly frustrated, and it never worked. You know why? I found out in about an hour. It never worked because the problem was the software. The update had corrupted the little piece of software that told my computer how to work with my dock. Didn't matter how often I pressed that keyboard, how how hard I pushed on those buttons. Didn't matter how often I unplugged the dock and plugged it back in. It was never going to work because the software was corrupted. What finally fixed it is when I went to the dock's website, and sure enough, there was a new little patch. They knew the Windows update had broken it. I downloaded this thing, installed it, and like magic, everything worked again. Friends, sin is a corruption. That's what Paul calls it here. It's a corruption in our software that causes us to be selfish and to pursue behaviors that lead to alienation and self-destruction, even as we long for community and for belonging. And that means that trying harder and trying again won't fix it. The only thing that's going to fix it is if God first rewrites our software. You see, Paul knows that if the church in Ephesus is to have any hope of unity, they need God to rewrite their software. He knows that once God does that, it opens up a whole new way of living, and more to the point, a whole new way of living together. 
All right, now I need to move on, but I want to just pause for one minute to emphasize this truth. The truth that God in Christ transforms us and renews our mind is literally the hope of the world. Now, this is another whole sermon, but I just I need to touch on it this morning. Listen, we all look around, we see the wars and the polarization and the manipulation, uh, and none of that, much as it discourages us, should surprise us because it's the natural fruit of sin. And we of all people ought to know and understand what sin is and what it does. And because of that, we should know that no human effort or philosophy or government is ever going to solve it, ever. I mean, it can make some progress at the margins, but it can never get to the root cause. And that's exactly why it is such good, such good news and vital news that God is at work even now, right now, through the work of the Holy Spirit, transforming lives and renewing minds, rewriting software to make what was once impossible, possible. And we, the church, should be a window onto that good future of God's. We are the vanguard We are to be the embodiment of that good news. People from every tribe and nation join together under the lordship of Jesus. We're the proof that the good news about Jesus is the hope of the world, and that's a big deal. But, and here's the thing, we're getting closer to Barnabas, but we still have a choice We can run our lives on the new software given to us by God through the Holy Spirit, or we can keep trying to run our lives on the old software. Uh, You won't be surprised to hear that my suggestion this morning, uh, Paul and I both would appeal to you to live according to the new software, according to the way of life that you have found in Jesus. Well, technically, I'm appealing to you. Paul is insisting, but he is an apostle, so he can do that. He's insisting that we stop living like those who do not know God. If we are in Christ, a new way of life is open to us. We should choose it. So what does that look like? What does it look like to live according to the new software? Well, that means living according to the new attitude of mind given to us in Christ Jesus. So look back at Ephesians 4, 25 to 32. Paul says, therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must no longer steal, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, there's nothing new, novel here, nothing profound. In fact, I hope most of this strikes you as obvious, because I think it is. We need to be honest with each other, share with each other. We need to get rid of bitterness and rage and malice. We should be compassionate 
and forgive each other, just as God in Christ forgave us. But there's one thing that struck me this week, that challenged me, and frankly, that convicted me this week. And that was verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only, only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Paul says that part of the way we live according to that new software is by choosing to build others up. I want you to think about that for a moment and think about what it's like to be part of a church where that's the rule, a church where we don't run from hard truths, but instead where truth is spoken faithfully but with compassion and only ever out of a desire to build the hearer up. We all want that. I want that. But then let me be honest with you. I need to confess, as I was convicted this week, that at times I have used speaking the truth as a cover for my own selfish agenda. I spoke it because I wanted to be right and I wanted to be seen to be right. Other times, I know that I have used it uh, as a cover for saying things in anger. And I knew that at the time, knew that I was using the truth as a fig leaf and as an excuse. I knew that in those moments, I wasn't trying to build anyone up. I was trying to put them in their place, at least as I saw it. And we need to call that, I need to call it what it is. That's sin. That's the old software. That's me thinking other people are the problem people when I was the problem person. Or, you know, maybe more realistically, when we both were. Now, that might just be me, but if that sounds familiar to any of you, I have good news. God can rewrite that programming. He's done it. He continues to do it through his spirit. And if you are in Christ, then we can choose to live differently. We can choose to be compassionate and forgiving, to be a speaker of truth, to be people who in all they say build other people up instead of tearing them down. Uh, when I think of that, of building others up, of being an encourager, I think of Barnabas. You probably are familiar with him. Uh, he's an important figure in the New Testament, even though he didn't write any of our New Testament books. Uh, Barnabas wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Uh, he didn't make any of the big decisions about the direction of the church in the New Testament. Barnabas was significant because he le lived by the new software. He was a person who encouraged others and built others up. And, and Acts, uh, shortly after Paul uh, encounters the risen Jesus and goes from being Christianity's greatest persecutor to one of its greatest advocates, uh, he returns to Jerusalem because he's fired up. He can't wait to get out there and to start spreading the good news that Jesus is Lord. And so he comes to Jerusalem because he wants, he wants the blessing and the commissioning of the apostles. But understandably, the apostles are a little suspicious of this. And they went, wait, wait, wait. The guy who was rounding up and, and imprisoning us before, now he, he just wants our blessing? And they went, yeah, I don't think so. Sounds a lot like, you know, he's just trying to get us all in one place so it's easier to arrest us. 
And so they declined. They said, I don't think we're ready to meet with Paul. And they were in a standoff until Barnabas said, I'll take the risk. It was Barnabas who stuck his neck out, I mean, literally risked his life to meet with Paul and to see if his conversion was genuine. It was Barnabas who listened to Paul and heard his story and said, yeah, that's, that's the work of Jesus. It was Barnabas who went back to the apostles and said, listen, this is the real deal. You need to meet with him. It was Barnabas who brought those two groups together. Later, when Paul and Barnabas are leaving on a missionary trip uh, and, and a man named John Mark wants to go with them, Paul says, no way. John came with us on a previous trip and, and he, he ditched us. He left partway through, left us high and dry. I'm not getting burned again. And it was Barnabas who said, no, John Mark deserves a second chance. And Paul, if you can't travel with him, I will. And he did. Listen, it's easy to idealize and romanticize the past, but the fact is, all those people we read about in the New Testament and the Old Testament, they're normal people, just like us. People with fears and anxieties, with tempers and less patience than they would like. And here's the truth. Even Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, author of half of the New Testament, even Paul needed, needed a Barnabas. He needed someone who could forgive him and someone who could build him up and trust him. Someone to forgive him and to stick out his neck for him. John Mark needed a Barnabas, someone to show him compassion and to give him a second chance. Here's my theory. I think all of us at some point, probably at many points in our lives, all of us are going to need a Barnabas. So here's my challenge to you this morning. Choose to be like Barnabas. Listen, God has done the hard part, okay? He has transformed us. He has made us new. He is even now at work in us, rewriting our software from the ground up. It's something we never could have done for ourselves, and he did it. So choose to live by that new software, freed from the chains of sin, Stop looking for opportunities to put people in their place. There's plenty of people doing that. Start looking for people that you can build up. Be a Barnabas. Be the first to show compassion, the first to forgive, the first to seek peace, and the first to speak truth in a way that builds up the person who receives it. Because here's the thing. We are better together. We are better together when we all of us live by that new software, by the attitude of mind we have in Christ Jesus. We are better together when we choose to build each other up. We are better together when we choose to live like Barnabas. Would you bow with me once more? Heavenly Father, I just give you thanks this morning for the work that you do in our lives God, it's so easy to take that for granted, to lose sight of how incredible that transformation is. The fact that you make us new through Jesus Christ. The fact that you, by your Holy Spirit, are at work rewriting our software, erasing the corruption of sin, and opening up a new way of life. God, I'm so grateful for that and grateful for your continued work. I'm grateful of the, of the group of people that you have brought here together at First Free 
And Father, I pray that as you continue to forge unity in this family of God, that you would begin by doing your work in us. And Father, then help us to acknowledge that work and to choose each day to live by that new software. Help us to choose to be like Barnabas. In your name we pray. Amen.